Church, you can turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 and verses 42 through 44 will be our kind of main text, our launching text for this morning. We're going to take a look at a lot of uh, the moving parts and everything that goes on leading up to our main text for today and uh, carrying on after that. Last week we had made our way to the book of John, the gospel of John. And in doing so, we looked at John chapter 6, where we saw Jesus is the bread of life. But even more than that, we saw that it is only by uh, the ones who the Father draws that can partake in that bread of life. And as the crowd who had had their bellies filled just the day before by Jesus demanded that he provide more bread, we saw that Jesus is the true and greater Moses from Deuteronomy 18.18. As we see, not only does he provide bread, he is the bread. And not only does he uh, calm the sea to walk through on dry ground as Moses did by the power of the Lord, but rather Jesus walked on the water itself and calmed the storm. So, now, this week we continue moving through the Gospels and we find ourselves in the Gospel of Luke where we'll be this week and next week. And just a few weeks ago, we dove into Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Now, for any of us who have grown up in the church, we know uh, that the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we know it as Jesus' dictation of what life in his kingdom looks like. However, what we need to make sure we have a solid understanding of is why Jesus' kingdom is different. Like, why, why is Jesus' kingdom that he's coming proclaiming, why is it different from the kingdoms of the world? And this is what the Sermon on the Mount helps us understand. But before we can understand that, there is one more thing that we must understand that is even more fundamental and that is, we need to understand why Jesus' kingdom and his lordship are necessary. What do I mean by that? If we buy into the lie that all men are born mostly good with the ability to decide for ourselves what is right and wrong, then there's no need for a kingdom or a lord outside of this world. And so therefore we must have a solid and sure understanding of what Scripture clearly portrays for us. That since the fall of our first father Adam, we've seen the curse of sin take its effect. Since Genesis 3.23, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. So all manners of Toil and strife and disease and wars and all these things can be attributed to the fall. And so too we see in the fall the inherent sinfulness of man. That our hearts are wicked from birth. The heart is deceitful above all else. Who can understand it we see in Jeremiah 17, 9. The curse of sin has made it so that it is not our misguided deeds which make us sinners. Hear that. It is not our sin which makes us sinners. No, we sin because we are sinners. And it's important for us to understand the structure and how that follows one another. 
Because if we get that out of order, we can fool ourselves to thinking that simply by adopting some moral principles and uh, trying to figure out what's right and wrong, that we can somehow rid ourselves of sin. Of course, the major fault with that is the ourselves part, that we could rid ourselves of sin. Of course not. I, don't, I want us to be a church that does not simply have a loose understanding of sin, but rather a church that has an ever-increasing view of the grandeur of God's grace in the cross of Christ as a result of our firm understanding of the depths from which he saved us. Because this is what that does. When we truly understand our sinfulness, what it does is not make us continually feel like down in the dumps, like, man, like I'm just awful. What it does is elevate how great and glorious the cross of Christ is. This is what we see in the fall and the curse. And so what today's text reveals to us is the exact model, means, and methods which Jesus gave us for his kingdom to be established. See, today is kind of the precursor to Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to see the, which is, uh, as we see the model, means, and method which Jesus gave us for his kingdom to be established is the curse of sin to be repealed and to prepare the consummation of his kingdom. So let, I'm going to invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word once again. And we'll read our text for today coming from Luke chapter 4, verses 42 through 44. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This is the word of God. God, we come before you this morning eager for you through the work of your spirit, through your word, to help us better understand your word, that we might better apply your word to our lives. God, help us to truly grasp what it looks like to be citizens of your kingdom, a different kingdom than those of this world. And may that citizenship, Lord, may that take precedence over any other citizenship that we hold dear here. Lord, I pray that as we look to your word this morning, you would help us to see our role in your kingdom as well. And that our role is not, is not static, but it's vibrant and active that you call us and model for us how we are to live within your kingdom. Lord, guard me from error as I preach your word and may your word be what drives us today. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, church. So our text for today is the very tip of the spear of Jesus' preaching and teaching ministry. Here, I mean, even as we began that, he said, when it was day, he departed and went to a desolate place and the people sought him. So he's been doing ministry already, but this is just the very tip of the spear as he's preparing now to go out and continue his ministry elsewhere. The events directly preceding today's text point us in the direction of what Jesus was doing here. When we go back to the beginning of chapter 4, Jesus has just been baptized 
and is led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted. And I'll encourage you, go back and look there at the beginning there of chapter 4 and you see just that. And now starting around verse 5, we read, this is as Satan, the devil here, is taking Jesus and tempting him in the wilderness. And we read in verse 5, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. See, this is a power play by the devil. Not only that, but notice the tactic which Satan uses to tempt Jesus. The word made flesh. His twisted tactic is the same as it has been since the garden. Twisting God's words to the point of getting man to disbelieve them. Notice he repeatedly says in this encounter with Jesus as he's tempting him, if you are the son of God. Jesus' identity as the son of God has already been confirmed at his baptism. So were Jesus to indulge Satan in any one of his temptations, it would be questioning what God has already said to be true. To indulge Satan in his offering of the kingdoms of the world would be to give him more power than he has already been given. Satan is on a leash, church. We need look no further than the cross to see that he has no more power than what has been given him by God the Father. And God uses even that, even the worst things of this world to accomplish his purposes and spread his glory. We read this in 1 John 5. Verse 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Ephesians 2 affirms this also. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So does Satan have some rule and authority of this broken, fallen world? Yes, but only that which has been given to him. So do not buy into the uh, all too often repeated evangelical lie that has been passively spread through the church for so long that there's some sort of cosmic battle going on between God and Satan and, and in this struggle sometimes Satan wins and sometimes God wins. No, God is always in control. Every one of our sins can be traced to this, that we have inherited from our first father Adam a desire to serve ourselves and distrust God's word. Therefore, when Jesus comes, he comes with a mission of preaching a distinct kingdom, a kingdom that is set apart, different from the kingdoms that follow the course of the, of the power of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the one, the power who has been given over this fallen world. Jesus comes preaching a distinct kingdom, different from that. You go on and you continue in our text and jump down to verse 16. You see, as Jesus uh, comes away from this encounter with Satan, after having Satan twist the words of God, Jesus, of course, repeats God's word to him with accuracy, as he is the word made flesh, as we read in John. And then we see Jesus begin his ministry in his hometown. 
And so in verse 16, we read, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And when he, and he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So notice in this section that Jesus quotes from Isaiah, being from Isaiah chapter 61, a very important chapter in the book of Isaiah. Nonetheless, as he quotes this chapter, he's, notice this repeated word here in this section from Isaiah. Proclaim, 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 right? So the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, which has already been affirmed at Jesus' baptism, and then as he, as he is full of the Spirit, he goes out into the wilderness to be tempted because he has anointed me to do what? To proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me, there it is again, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So in this very text which Jesus quotes, Repeated again three times is this word proclaim. So take note of two things here. Jesus says of himself he has come to one, proclaim, and two, the message which he is proclaiming is what? Good news. Well, what is this good news that Jesus comes to proclaim? Now, in the context of Isaiah 61, which is where, again, Jesus reads from, the context is that of exiles being released. In the context of what Jesus says here, it takes on a further meaning. Jesus says of Isaiah, says of himself, that the ultimate fulfillment of these verses is not physical exiles of Babylonian captivity, but spiritual ones. Jesus comes to proclaim good news to the poor in spirit, liberty to those captive in spirit, recovering of sight to the blind of spirit, set liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus was sent to inaugurate his kingdom. And that is this good news that the kingdom is at hand. But notice, I want to pay attention to that word inaugurate, that is to, to begin to show that it is, it is initiated. It's only the beginning. It's the tip of the spear here. And so he is beginning this kingdom, but the, the consummation of the kingdom is not until when? His return. So we need to keep that in mind. That he has come to inaugurate the kingdom. He is setting it forth. He's preaching the good news. And then at the consummation of his kingdom, all these things will be truly made done in their presence. So Jesus goes from being offered the kingdoms of the world by the prince of the power of the air, he who prowls like a lion and 
who has been given control of such kingdoms of this world to saying, no thanks, I'm here to proclaim. And I'm here to proclaim the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor. That the one who has control of this fallen world has no control of you as long as you are part of this kingdom. Now, what Jesus' audience needed to know and what we need to know is how Jesus' kingdom is distinctly different from the kingdoms of this world. Because the kingdoms of this world allow us to indulge in our fleshly desires. The kingdoms of this world will allow us to pursue our monetary obsessions to our heart's desire. Why? Because it means more taxes for the kingdoms of this world. They'll allow us to define what marriage is and isn't. They'll allow us to define what gender is and isn't. They'll allow us to fill ourselves with all manner of self-indulgence without ever acknowledging who is truly Lord. Why? Because it keeps us under the lordship of the prince of the power of the air, the kingdoms of this world. So why is Jesus' kingdom so radically different? How is the kingdom of God divergent from the kingdom of this world? How is the kingdom of God actively and distinctively different from the kingdom of this world? The kingdom of this world can only promise what it can never deliver. It can only promise what it can never deliver. The kingdoms of this world promise fulfillment, success, happiness, joy, abounding peace and hope. And they can never deliver it. So how is Jesus' kingdom actively and distinctively different? How does the kingdom of God preached by Christ and his church continually diverge? That's, that's why I wanted to use that word diverge there because it, it means that it is continually separating itself. How do we continue to separate ourselves from the false kingdoms of this world? By proclaiming that there is true life and liberty in Christ. Don't miss this. Have you ever wondered to yourself what the purpose of Christ's miracles were? Because Jesus goes on here and the crowd gets distraught with him a little while later. Even after he heals a man with a demon and he heals many he drives out demons. He heals ailments of this world. Have you ever wondered to yourself what the purpose of Christ's miracles were? They certainly weren't solely for the purpose of just exercising his power, just to show off his power. Although they revealed and affirmed his deity. They certainly weren't for solely, solely for the purpose of showing acts of compassion, although they revealed his heart and the heart of the Father for those who are enslaved in this world. They reveal his, his power over demons, his power over ailments, his power over natural ways of this world, as we saw last week, to, to calm storms, to produce fish and bread. How is the kingdom of Christ divergent from the kingdoms of this world, we see that Jesus has the ultimate power to reverse the curse of sin. So as Jesus is healing, which these ailments are caused by what? The curse. As Jesus is healing and these people are possessed, why? Because they have succumbed and submitted themselves to the kingdoms of this world, to the prince of the power of the air. 
So as Jesus is showing his power over these things, he's showing his ultimate power to reverse the curse of sin, which only come by being a part of what? His kingdom. Friends, if your ultimate example of liberty is the stars and stripes, I feel sorry for you. I really do. And I don't mean that in a tongue-in-cheek manner. I mean it sincerely. If you're seeking liberty in anything or anyone other than Christ, you're a slave. So quit shackling yourselves to what the prince of the power of this world, the kingdoms of this world, deem okay. Quit shackling ourselves to pornography. Find no liberty there. Quit shackling yourself to money. You'll find no liberty there. Quit shackling yourself to all the things that this world and the kingdoms of this world say will provide liberty. Because Christ has come to proclaim true liberty and to set the captives free. All of those things that we allow ourselves to indulge in the distortions of the kingdom of this world, twist those things into rather than what the kingdom of God has proclaimed those things to be. Again, I want to refer us, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We see Paul exclaiming these similar truths on what it looks like, the distinctions between this world and to be in Christ and to be a part of his kingdom. We read this in Ephesians 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So where does that put all of mankind? Children of wrath. So you are either children of wrath, or we'll see what is the distinction. Verse 4, we pick back up. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. So notice again the importance of understanding the depths of our depravity as being dead in our trespasses. What has he done? Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So again, understanding truly our sinful condition does not continually to put us in a pit because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But rather what it does is continually elevate the grace of the cross that he has made us alive together in Christ, raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Why? Because we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So here's the distinction. You are either children of wrath like the rest of mankind, or you have been redeemed and are now a workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. There's the distinction of the kingdom. 
He is so much bigger and more glorious than we could ever hope to communicate in a thousand lifetimes on our own. But if you realize in this, what is he doing? In him, he displays his glory through us. Who could only hope to communicate the riches of his glory. But through our testimonies of having been brought to faith in Christ, he is continuously displaying his glory through us. What a mystery. Jesus has the ultimate power to redeem the hearts of man. As our hearts are redeemed, we assimilate ourselves to following the way of his kingdom that we may, pro that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So then how does, what does this continue to look like as we live this out? Turn to Romans chapter 10. We'll be right back in Luke 4 here in just a little bit. But Romans chapter 10. We read this starting in verse 10. As Paul is explaining the, the differences of righteousness based on the law and righteousness based on faith. He goes on to say, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For it is, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. So if you're in his kingdom, you're in his kingdom. And there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. So there's no ethnic boundaries. There's no geopolitical boundaries. That all who confess that truth. Confess with the mouth is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, what does it look like? What is, what is our role in the kingdom? Verse 14, how then will they call on in, in him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news or preach good news. But they have not obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So we have to ask ourselves in reading that and looking back in chapter 4 and seeing what Christ said of himself he had came to do. Our text for this morning. The next day had come, he departed, he went to a desolate place, and the people sought after him. And they would have kept him from leaving. They didn't want him to leave. Why? Because the authority with which he spoke of the word of God. But what did he tell them? I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. So then we must ask ourselves that this was... Christ's purpose, and this is how he's called us to live, is a distinct kingdom that he is preaching. How is the kingdom of God established? Well, how is Christ modeling it be established for us? Just a few chapters later, back here in Luke 4, on the other side of the Sermon on the Mount, Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells the parable of the sower. A parable in which not only does he give an explanation for the disciples, but he explains why he speaks in parables. If you'll just turn just a few chapters to Luke chapter 8. 
in verse 10. So the disciples asked him what this parable of the sower meant. You got some seed that falls on rocky soil, good soil, and everything in between, right? Some yields nothing, some yields a hundredfold. What's, like, what does this mean? The disciples have to ask even. And he said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God of God. So he says he speaks in parables because some people just truly won't hear and see and understand the word or know the word because their hearts are so deceptive and evil. But the seed is what? As he clearly says, the seed is the word of God that's being cast out in this parable of the sower. So how is the kingdom of God established? Through the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom of God. That is how we establish the kingdom through the preaching of the word. How do we know that? Because that's what Jesus modeled for us. That's what he was doing. That's what he said he came to do is preach the good news, to proclaim. That's what he quoted from Isaiah. Proclaim, proclaim, proclaim. That's what he says here in this parable of the sower. Part of proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God the gospel of salvation is that there are those that for their hardness of heart will never hear or understand it. But that does not negate our need to preach the gospel and sow the seed. What is the good news of the kingdom of God, though, we have to ask ourselves? What is Jesus coming to preach? Why is it such good news? Again, it's because he's coming to show that he is Lord. Not Satan who can offer up the kingdoms of this world. He comes to establish his own kingdom. To redeem the hearts of those who have been drawn away. Fallen in sinfulness. He comes to draw them back to himself. How does he do it? By preaching the good news. By proclaiming the good news. How do we continue to follow in obedience in his footsteps? We do the same. We proclaim the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God. And what is that good news? That Jesus is Lord. Jesus Christ is the God-man, came to earth, lived the life we couldn't live, died the death we should have died, was raised to life by the glory of God the Father, and now sits at the right hand of God. And whoever believes in him bears no condemnation for their sin, but shall have eternal life in him. So what is our task? As the church, as those who have heard, who the seed has been sown on the soil of our heart and has brought to fruition salvation in us, what is our task? Our task is to treasure Christ and proclaim the word. And we see this reflected in the early church. So if you go to Acts chapter 2. As those very disciples who are sitting here, having heard Jesus say this parable, having seen Jesus preach the good news, hear this parable, they ask these questions. Now they've seen the risen, resurrected Christ, and they've received the Holy Spirit, having seen the resurrected Christ. Now what happens? We have Peter's sermon at Pentecost. 
And in this sermon, what does he preach? He preaches the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God. We read this, Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. Where was Jesus ministering as we read our scripture this morning? A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. So again, he was displaying his power over sin, his authority. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So it wasn't according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of who? The one who proclaims to have control and be able to deliver up the kingdoms of this world to Jesus. It wasn't Satan. Who was it? It was the foreknowledge and definite plan of God through which Christ was crucified. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So the power, the most powerful weapon that Satan can hold over us is our continued sin. And Jesus looses those pow that power from him in the cross. Well then, what is the results of that sin? It's death. Well, Jesus obliterates that power as well. This is why we can say there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is why we can say this is where we find true hope and joy in Christ. Because any weapon that the enemy had has been defanged. Through Jesus' sacrifice and lordship. So what does Peter do? He preaches the gospel. He tells exactly what happened. And we continue reading. Pick back up in verse 36 of chapter 2. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. Jesus has given us a model of proclamation of the gospel. And so from the very beginnings of the church, this is how the kingdom was grown. This is how the kingdom was continuing to be established. And that is how the kingdom is continuing to be established today. And so the, the challenge for us is are we fulfilling our task? Are we walking in the model of Christ? Or do we let well enough be well enough? Do we say, well, you know, I, I make my best effort to live out the gospel, so surely that's good enough. Like, I don't actually have to, you know, proclaim it. Well, I mean, the, the model set for us here would clearly say that's very wrong. That our task is clear, that we treasure Christ and proclaim the word. We treasure Christ above all else. We hold tightly to the cross. Why? Because there we continually see that as sinful as our hearts are, he has made us clean. He has made us a new creation. He has brought us into his kingdom and made us citizens of his kingdom to be distinct and divergent and separate from the kingdoms of this world. 
that we may proclaim his word, that others may continue to be drawn by God the Father to him. So again, the challenge for us is, are we fulfilling our task? Or are we letting well enough be well enough? The other challenge here is, have you believed in the gospel? So there are certainly those who have not, who have this rocky soil. And the gospel is pounding like a sledgehammer. But some just won't hear. But for those who the soil has been broken through and the seed is produced and is taken deep root and producing fruit for the kingdom of God, our task continue to cast out that seed to the glory of God the Father, that we may treasure Christ and proclaim the word. So I, call, I, I beg you, if you have not believed in the gospel of what I just said a while ago, Jesus Christ, the God-man, came to earth, lived the life we couldn't live, died the death we should have died, was raised to life by the glory of God the Father, and now sits at his right hand, and whoever believes in him bears no condemnation for their sin, but shall have eternal life. Believe, repent, and believe that you may receive the Holy Spirit and that you may preach the gospel as you treasure Christ. Let that be our task, church. Let us be a church that is known for how much we treasure Christ and how relentless we are in our proclaiming of the good news of the kingdom of God. Let's pray. God, we love you. I pray that you would empower our feeble flesh that is so often drawn astray that you would empower us through the power of your gospel and the power of your spirit at work within us to faithfully and relentlessly preach the word, the gospel of your kingdom. God, may you also empower us for holy living because we cannot do it on our own. Give us all necessary strength and endurance to truly live out the new life that we have in Christ and to be a model of kingdom citizenship, not of this world, but of your kingdom. Father, for those that don't know you who aren't a part of your kingdom, I pray that you would draw them to yourself, that that seed would break through the soil and take root. Your word would pierce their hearts, draw them to yourself for repentance and salvation from sin. God, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.